Howdy, folks. We're going to be talking about 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5 today. Before we get into that, for those of you that use your authorized liberty in Romans 14 and verse 5 to esteem one day better than another, or for those of you who don't and esteem every day alike, I uh, want to wish you a happy Thanksgiving if you're of those that use that liberty to observe it. Uh, I do. Uh, not necessarily for the traditional reasons in America, but I love the three F's that happen in my house on Thanksgiving, family, food, and football. So I'm looking forward to Thursday. Uh, for those of you that are, I wish you such a good day in advance. Go Cowboys. But our study today has nothing to do with food or football to a degree, it does have something to do with family and the spiritual sense. The thought of the text that we're going to drop into today, just continuing from where we left off last week. You know, last week we talked about how as newborn babes, your desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. If so be that you've tasted, the Lord is gracious. Verses 4 and 5 picks up right that, to whom coming, that is the Lord who is gracious as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. Ye also, as lively stones, are built up a spiritual house, an holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. So that's what we're going to be breaking down uh, today, the very idea that our gracious Lord that we learn of through his word was rejected of men is going to kind of be part of what we talk about this week and next. And you know, it is reasonable to think that good people would not normally be harmed. In fact, there are passages in the scriptures that teach us that. In Proverbs 16 and verse 7, when a man's ways please the Lord, he maketh even his enemies to be at peace with him. Or in Romans 13, 3, for rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Will thou then not be afraid of the power do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. So generally speaking, men tend to treat people who, who are good fits in society well. But like many, many statements made in the Bible, you know that there are times where there are exceptions, right? You would think that Jesus would have been one of the most loved men to ever walk on the face of the earth. However, there are some things that play in, like, for example, Solomon, who just said in Proverbs 16 and verse 7, by inspiration, that when a man's ways please the Lord, his enemies are at peace with him. Also said in Proverbs 15 and verse 12, a scorner loveth not one that reproveth him, neither will he goeth unto the wise. We see, as we look at the minor prophet Amos in Amos 5 and verse 10, they hate him that rebuketh in the gate, and they abhor him that speaketh uprightly. Well, this was the case with Jesus. In John three nineteen through 21, Jesus, contextually talking to Nicodemus, says this is condemnation, that light is coming to the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. To his physical brothers, 
John 7, 7, Jesus says, The world cannot hate you, but me it hateth, because I testify of it, that the works thereof are evil. So we see one of the reasons, not, not the only reason, but one of the reasons that Jesus was hated was because he is the light that came into the world and exposed darkness, or in other words, exposed the sins of man. So when we look at these types of things, we know there are times where it's just terrible that good people are mistreated. And by the way, it is not just in times where you're talking about Jesus or where you're even talking about Christians in general. Even when you go back in the Old Testament, there are times where a society just begins to be so corrupt that there are those that are quick. They run to evil. They're quick to shed innocent blood. In fact, in Isaiah 59, verses 1 through 7, a time of apostasy in Israel, says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy, that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you, that he will not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood, your fingers with iniquity, your lips have spoken lies, your tongue hath muttered perverseness. None calleth for justice, nor any pleadeth for truth. They trust in vanity and speaketh lies. They conceive mischief and bring forth iniquity. They have cockatrice eggs and weave the spider's webs. He that eateth of their eggs dieth, and that which is crust breaketh out into a viper. Their webs shall not become garments, neither shall they cover themselves with their works, for their works are works of iniquity, and the act of violence is in their hands. Their feet run to evil and make haste to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity, wasting and destruction are in their paths. Verse 8 says, The way of peace they know not. There is no judgment in their goings. They have made them crooked paths. Whosoever goeth therein shall not know peace. So there are times where societies are like that historically. We're seeing times here in the United States of America where, where there are people being mistreated for absolutely no reason. Uh, they're just walking down the street in major cities and they're being assaulted. We're seeing cases here in the U.S. of A. where stores are, are being robbed, not for any reason other than people can. So they're just doing it. There are times where people are running towards evil. And so when we think about rejection, when we think about what Jesus went through, when we think about what the godly go through, and there's you know some relative things here. The Christian that Peter is writing to, the Christians that he is writing to, are strangers who are scattered into lands that are not their own because of persecution. We talked about that in the first nine verses of the first chapter. So they can relate to being rejected or disallowed indeed of men, not for the same reasons that Jesus was, but for relatable reasons. Society then had become evil and corrupt. Uh, there was so much religious division, even within local bodies of Christ, like we see in Rome, like we see in Galatia, where Jew and Gentile were pitted against one another, like we see in Acts 15 in Antioch. So sad things, terrible things were happening, and 
Jesus paid a price for that. Christians were paying prices for that. So rejection, where you know you, it just doesn't make sense. Why am I being mistreated? I've done nothing wrong. I've done everything right. Well, sometimes society is just that evil. But when it comes to Jesus, it was not a surprise to God the Father or Jesus the Son or the Holy Spirit. It was not a surprise to anybody that was aware of the prophets that Jesus was going to come into this world and that he was going to be rejected. He did not come into this world thinking that he was going to win some kind of popularity contest. The prophets had foretold much of what he would suffer. For example, one of the more well-known prophecies related to Jesus is Isaiah chapter 53. And we know that this is related to Jesus because in Acts chapter 8, I'll read, I'll look at this first, and then you can think about the wording. We'll get there. In Acts 8, Philip the evangelist comes to a man named, uh, the man that's called the Ethiopian eunuch in the scriptures. Acts 8, 30 through 35, Philip ran thither to him, heard him read the prophet Isaiah, and said, Understandest what thou readest? And he said, How can I, except some man should guide me? And he desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him. The place of the scripture which he read was this. So listen carefully because you're going to hear it when we read Isaiah 53. It says, He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and like a lamb dumb before shearer, so opened he not his mouth. And his humiliation, his judgment is taken away. And who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. And the eunuch answered. So after that reading from Isaiah, Philip, and said, I pray thee, of whom speaketh the prophet this, of himself or of some other man? Notice what Philip did. He opened his mouth began at that same scripture, and preached unto him Jesus. So Isaiah 53, with that confirmation that we're going to be talking about Jesus, reads, Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground, he hath no form nor comeliness. When we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, this fits into what we're talking about here in 1 Peter 2, 4, disallied and doubt, or disallied and doubt. Wow, listen to me, combine some words. Disallowed indeed of men. So back to this, Isaiah 53, back to verse 3. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and we hid as our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did not, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All like we sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. I got I got to get my read on today, right? <laughs> he was oppressed and was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shears is dumb, so opening not his mouth. Are you hearing that from what the eunuch was reading? Goes on Isaiah fifty three eight. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who should declare his generation? For he was cut off of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. He made his grave with the wicked, 
and with a rich in his death because he had done violence, neither was there any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see travail of his soul, shall be satisfied by his knowledge, shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide with him a portion of the great, he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, was numbered with the transgressors, he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. So what we see here about Jesus is it was not a surprise. It was foreknown that he was going to be rejected. Jesus wasn't just dependent on the prophets, nor was he just reading the audience, so to speak. He knew what was going on. He knew what he was going to face. He was aware of what was happening and going to happen. Uh, I'll give you a couple of accounts here. In Mark, the third chapter, first verse through the seventh, he entered again in the synagogue, and there was a man there which had a withered hand. And they watched him whether he would heal on the Sabbath day, they might accuse him. And he saith unto the man that had the withered hand, Stand forth. And he saith unto them, Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath days or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they held their peace. And when he looked round about on them with anger, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts, he saith unto the man, Stretch forth thine hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored whole as the other. And the Pharisees went forth and straightway took counsel with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. But Jesus withdrew himself from his disciples to the sea, and a great multitude from Galilee followed him and from Judea. So we can look at Jesus, and we know and can see here that he's aware of the situation that he's in. He's aware of what's going on, when to come, when to go. Luke 9, 22 said, The Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected of the elders, chief priests, scribes, and slain, be slain, and be raised the third day. So he didn't go forward in his work on earth saying, I don't know what's coming next. He knew what was coming next. This is one of the things, and for those of you that are accustomed to listening to me, you know that I like to bring this up when I talk about Jesus. I like to bring it up a lot. It's one thing to suffer for somebody. You know, in the heat of a moment, to be a fireman and run into a, a building to save a child or, or someone else, especially, you know, children. You know, you get this idea that man just becomes stronger and and oh, we'll, we'll go through the wall to help somebody that's weaker. At least you'd hope it's not so much like that as, as it ought to be. Well, in the heat of the moment, that's one thing. But to know for hundreds and, and not even hundreds, but thousands of years in advance uh, and, and on whenever God determined what was going to happen, to come into this world and know what's around the next corner and still go around that next corner, most people would avoid that. Most people would in, not enter into harm's way. Jesus knows what is coming. I think about my daughter Taylor and her innocent mind. She knows that she has a doctor's appointment coming up all the way in May. And she's been talking about it and really really talking about it. And she knows she's going to get blood drawn. She hates it. If there was a way to avoid that, boy, she would. <laughs> Just getting blood drawn. How many people are like that? That they're anxious about things when they know what is coming. But Jesus kept teaching 
with clarity of mind, with the desire to save the very people that are going to betray him and put him to death. He wasn't caught off guard. He knows what's in man. In fact, in John 2, 23 through 25, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover and the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles, which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men and indeed, and needed not rather, that any man should testify man for he knew what was in man. He knows what's going on internally and externally. He faced a lot of rejection. And while he was teaching, going through earth, what we're more focused on generally is what led up to his death. How in Matthew 26, 55 and 56, how Jesus said to the multitudes as they came out against a thief with swords and staves, taking, he said, I sat daily with you teaching in the temple and you laid no hold, hold on me. But all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled and the disciples forsook him and fled. And then, you know, things that he had to face, like Peter denied him three times, verses 67 through 75, just like Jesus told him he was going to do. We see in Matthew 27, 39 through 44, they that passed by him reviled him, wagging their heads, saying, thou that destroyeth the temple and buildest in three days, save thyself. If thou be the son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, also the chief priests mocking him with the scribes and elders said, he saved others and himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God, let him deliver him now. If he will have him, for he said, I am the son of God. The thieves also, which were crucified with him, cast the same in his teeth. Think about how terrible the things that Jesus faced when he was being crucified. How that the Jews rejected him but chose to set free Barabbas. In Luke's account, Luke 23, 18 through 25, they cried all at once saying, away with this man and release unto us Barabbas, who for a certain sedition made in the city and for murder was cast in the prison. Pilate therefore willing to release Jesus, spake again unto them. But they cried saying, crucify him, crucify him. And he said in the third time, why? What evil hath he done. You know, that goes back to what we were talking about in Proverbs 16, 7 and Romans 13, 3. What, what, what did Jesus do to deserve this? Nothing, right? They, they did nothing. He, Pilate said, I have found no cause of death in him. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. But notice, they were instant with loud voices, requiring that he might be crucified. And the voices of them and the chief priests prevailed and Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they required. And he released unto them him that for sedition and murder was cast into prison, whom they had desired, but he delivered Jesus to their will. Think about how terrible the things that Jesus went through. So when we talk about disallowed indeed of men, there is a lot of complexity to that. How he was mistreated while he was teaching, how he was betrayed by Judas, his own disciple, for 30 pieces of silver, how he was forsaken of the very men that he trusted to carry the gospel into the world. How after, even after, you know, you, you, you think about how the disciples came to him after all the things that were fulfilled leading up into his ascension to heaven. And we read in Matthew 28, 16, and Mark 14, uh, 16, wait, Matthew 28... 
uh, Matthew 28, 16, and Mark 14, 14, that some of his disciples, and this is even after Judas has been uh, killed himself, they still doubted. And you, you, got, you got to think. You got to think. Of all the things that Jesus, Jesus faced, death on the cross, the, all the rejection of the men, what did it feel like for him to have the very men that are closest to him in the flesh to doubt him? For me, the person that I am, that's worse than the idea of being crucified in the physical sense. What it was for Jesus, the text doesn't tell us. But for me, it just hurts my heart, using that phrase, to think about what he went through, not just physically, but mentally. And we see it in the garden before he goes uh, to death. Just terrible things that he had to face. Disallowed indeed of men. So when we break down our lesson today, I really wanted you to have that thought in the back of your mind, that taste in your mouth as we think about everything that's going to come in our study today. So as we have talked about before in our previous contextual studies, we are looking at, in 1 Peter 2 verses 9 and 10, reveals to us that we're, we're talking, Peter's writing primarily to Gentiles, where he says, you're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, we're going to talk about that today, a holy nation, peculiar people, that you should show forth the praise of them who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in times past were not a people, but now are the people of God, which had obtained mercy, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. The Gentiles, to whom this letter is written, you have come to the rejected Jesus. And that's how our study starts. To whom coming? That is, coming to the Lord. Well, you know our Lord's invitation, where Matthew eleven twenty seven through 30, I think a lot of people have heard these passages within and without context. Either way, they get the point across. All things are delivered unto me of my Father, and no man knoweth the Son but the Father. Neither, neither knoweth any man the Father, save the Son, and to he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus, his invitation there, come unto me. So to whom coming? That's your choice. That's my choice. That was their choice. But it wasn't because Jesus won a popularity contest. He's the rejected Lord, the rejected Messiah from then through now. The majority will never, have never chosen the Lord. Few there be that find it, Luke 13, 23 and 24. Few that are saved, Matthew 7, 13 and 14. The book of Revelation, after John writes to the seven churches in Asia about all the that they're going to face and how the church is going to rise up out of the persecution that they were facing there at the end of the first century. He said to them in Re Revelation twenty-two seventeen, the spirit and the bride say, come. 
Let him that heareth say, Come. Let him that is athirst come, and whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. That's what Jesus is about. Even though he's rejected by the majority and will continue to be, he still pleads, come. Now, there has to be an understanding with that. If we're going to come to Jesus, and likely if you're listening to this podcast, you already have, or you're thinking about it, well, coming to Jesus includes the understanding that as you come to him, you have to walk away from other things, yourself, your sinful past, putting your priorities in order. Notice some scriptures. In Matthew 16, 24 through 27, Jesus said to his disciples, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what does a man profit it if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then shall he reward every man according to his works. So coming after Jesus means denying self and following him. In Luke 9, there's three individuals here, and I want you to notice how Jesus responds to their desire to follow him based upon who they were. And Luke 9, 57 through 62, came to pass as they went in a certain, uh, went away, a certain man said to him, Lord, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. Now remember, Jesus knows what's in man. We read that in John 2 and verse 25. So Jesus said unto him, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the son of man hath not where to lay his head. So you can see what Jesus knows going on inside this individual. As soon as there's not somewhere to sleep, as soon as there's not some place that is comfortable, this individual is going to walk away. So that was Jesus' response to him. He said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their dead, but go thou and preach the kingdom of God. I mean... Our, our Lord did not just sit back and say, well, I know you're going through a difficult time. and Let me give you some grief counseling and all these things. He said, no, let the dead bury the dead. You know what, what we know from our studies of the Bible is the body without the spirit is dead, James 2.26. So there's not a person to bury. When you think about someone who has left this world and, and their spirit has go, gone on, you're just taking care of their remains, not that actual person. Then, as we look at the conclusion of this context, 61-62, another also said, Lord, I will follow thee, but let me first go bid them farewell, which are at home at my house. As you said to him, no man, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. And you know what? That plays right into what's next. We're going to just jump right into the next text. Luke 14, 25 through 33. There went great multitudes with him. So I always, every time I read this, I think Jesus knew how to run them off. This is the Jesus that says, come unto me, all ye that labor and heavy laden. But listen, listen carefully. 
Coming to him means no one and nothing else can be between you and him. So notice this text. There went great multitudes with him. And he turned and said unto them, If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Now the word hate there sometimes becomes quite a, a point of confusion for people. You know, you do not have to be a Greek scholar. You do not have to be able to look up what a word means. If you study the Bible and you know passages, you're going to be able to reason through times where things might be confusing. Now, you can look up this Strong's number 3404, Masiho, I think is the pronunciation of that, Masiho, uh, but I might be wrong because I'm not a Greek scholar. Uh, and, and you can look that up to, and you could see that Strong's definition includes to love less. Uh, if you look up Thayer's, it's to hate, to pursue with hatred, to detest, to be hated, detested. Uh, but if you use reason, the same Lord has the Apostle Paul write, Husbands, love your wives, even though Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. In fact, we just talked about that on Tuesday's podcast, and we were talking about the husband and wife relationship. So you know that the word hate here isn't like to carnally hate somebody in that sense, uh, but it is to, to show preference to Christ over our family and our own lives. If you don't do that, you cannot be his disciple. Now, continuing in the text at verse 27, whosoever doth not bear his cross, come after me, cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, sitteth not down first and counteth the cost? Whether he have sufficient to finish it, lest happily after he had laid the foundation, not able to finish it, all that behold it began to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king... Going to make war against another king, sitteth not down first and consulteth whether he be able with 10,000 to meet him that cometh against him with 20,000. Or else, while the other is yet a great way off, he sendeth ambassage and desire conditions of peace. So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, cannot he cannot be my disciple. If you're not going to put the Lord first, everything else in the rear view cannot be his disciple. Coming to Jesus requires we learn of him. In John 6, 44 and 45, after he had fed the 5,000 and they desired to make him a king, he leaves them. They follow him. They get in his presence. He chastises them about laboring for the meat that perished. They, they didn't care about the miracle that he just did. They just wanted more food. And he's teaching them about, you have to, you have to partake, be partakers of me, not of you know food and drink of this world. In that greater context, John 6, 44 and 45, no man can come unto me except the Father which sent me draw him. And I'll raise him up that last day. It is written, the prophets, they shall be all taught of God. Every man, therefore, that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh unto me. So the Father draws through the scriptures those that would come to Jesus. There is no other way but to learn of him. Jesus as we look at to whom coming and as plays into the next part of what we're about to talk about is the chief cornerstone in Ephesians chapter 2, 19 through 22, 
Now, therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners. He's talking to Gentiles in Ephesus who were before, you know, if you go back and you read in this context uh, and, and start back in verse 11, who were before Gentiles, who were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, with strangers from the covenants of promise. So here in verse 19, now, therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and the household of God. So you're all members of the church built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are built together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. So Jesus says, come unto me with that understanding that you're walking away from everything else, that you're going to learn of him, and that you're going to, to, to be built in a building that has him as a chief cornerstone. Now, that chief cornerstone, he is the rejected stone that was prophesied of. When we look at the prophets, Psalm 118, 22 and 23 says, The stone which the builders refused has become the head, stone of the corner. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. When we come into Mark chapter 12, verses 1 through 12, and you know, I don't want to spend too much time talking about the builders rejecting him because when we get into verse 7 of 1 Peter 2, we'll talk a little bit more about that. But you'll see some of this language here and, and our thoughts will start leaning in this direction as we talk about him being disallowed of men as the stone that is disallowed of men. Mark 12, 1 through 12, he began to speak unto them by parables. A certain man planted a vineyard and set a hedge about it and digged a place for the wine fat and built a tower and let it out to husbandmen and went into a far country. So I think you're going to start to understand pretty easily where, where this parable is going, right? At the season, he sent to the husbandman a servant that he might receive from the husbandmen of the fruit of the vineyard. And they caught him and beat him and sent him away empty. And again, he sent them another servant. Him they cast stones and wound him in the head and sent him away shamefully handled. Again, he sent another. Him they killed and many others, beating some and killing some. Having yet therefore one son, his well-beloved, he sent him also last unto them, saying, They will reverence my son. But those husbandmen said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance shall be ours. And they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. What shall therefore the Lord of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the husbandmen and will give the vineyard unto others. And have ye not read the scripture? The stone which the builders rejected has become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing and marvelous in our eyes. And they sought to lay hold on him. But feared the people, for they knew that he had spoken the parable against them, and they left him and went their way. We were just talking about this in our study in Luke 11 uh, last Sunday here in El Paso. Uh, when Jesus talked to people, especially strongly, they got it. He, he didn't speak in such a way that they didn't understand who he was talking to. Well, he is the stone that the builders rejected. He's the light of the world, John 8, 12. Spake Jesus again to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. 
but as the light of the world, he came unto his own, John 1, 11, and his own received him not. What a shame. He came in part to save Israel from their sins. And Acts chapter 3, 25 and 26, after uh, Peter and John healed a lame man that sat at the gate of the temple and, and had an audience of the people, he says, You're the children of the prophets of the covenants which God made with our fathers, saying unto Abraham, In thy seed shall all the kindred of the earth be blessed. Unto you first, God, having raised up his son, Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from his iniquities. So you're the priority. You're the first people to hear the gospel. In Acts 2, it's Jews that hear the gospel. Acts 3, it's Jews that hear the gospel. And, and Acts chapter 5, Acts chapter 6, 7, it's Jews that are hearing the gospel. Come on, people. In Acts 5, 30 and 31, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you slew and hung on a tree. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior, for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. You're the people that God set forth his son to, to die for and the gospel first be preached unto. He sent the apostles to the Jews first. In Luke 24, 47, through, before Jesus ascends into heaven, it says that repentance and remission of sin should be pre preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And Paul wrote in Romans 1, 16, 17, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God and the salvation of everyone that believeth. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. It is written, the just shall live by faith. And you could see that there are accounts, uh, plenty of them. The Jews rejected the gospel. So then the gospel turned to the Gentiles. In Acts 13, 44 through 46, the context begins in the synagogue. It says, the next Sabbath day came almost a whole city together to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy spoke against those things which were spoken by Paul, contradicting and blaspheming. Then Paul and Barnabas waxed bold and said, it was necessary the word of God should first have been spoken to you, but seeing you put it off from you and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, lo, we turn to the Gentiles. So did you hear that? It was necessary first for them to hear the gospel because that was God's plan. And when you go through other accounts, you see similar things uh, that happen where the Gentiles have the opportunity to hear the gospel because of the rejection from the Jews. You see this like in Acts 18. Uh, it says, after these things, just beginning at verse 1, Paul departed from Athens, came to Corinth, and found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontius, lately come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because that Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome, came unto them because he was of the same craft. He abode with them and wrought for their occupation. By their occupation, they were tent makers. He reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath, persuaded the Jews and the Greeks. When Silas and Timotheus were come from Macedonia, Paul was pressed in the spirit, testified to the Jews that Jesus was Christ. When they opposed himself and blasphemed, he shook off his raiment, said to them, Your blood be upon you and your own heads. I am clean from henceforth. I will go to the Gentiles. Now, he did not just from that point forward never preach uh, to Jews again. He continued to in the context and, and chapters to come, going to Jerusalem so forth, so on. It, 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 even all the way through the book of Acts when he finally makes it to Rome and he meets with Jews in Rome in Acts 28, 17 through 28, where again, it's a similar account. The Jews rejected it and and, and Paul at that point in time uh, said that salvation is of God 
is sent to the Gentiles and they will hear it. So we see those accounts go forward. It's not that he stopped teaching the Jews. He continued to do that. But in the cities that he went to, when they rejected it, he turned to the Gentiles. And that relates to these people. Remember, the primary recipients of this letter from 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10 are Gentiles, people that in times past were not a people, but now are a people. And that relates to all of us. It is more than likely that if you're listening to this podcast, you cannot trace your bloodline all the way back to Abraham without any perversion of any sort. Uh, so we are non-Jews. We are, are Gentiles. So w- when we read unto us a living stone, so coming to Jesus who unto us is a living stone, he's rejected the Jews. But for us, he's that life-giving stone. And John 5, 26 to 29 says, for as the Father hath this life in himself, so he hath given the Son to have life in himself, hath given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming, in the which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice, shall come forth. They that have done good under the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil under the resurrection of damnation. So we look at Jesus as the life-giving stone. That is, if we make the choice to see him as such, and that is a choice, you know, in John 10, 27, 28, great chapter, the good shepherd chapter, he says, my sheep hear my voice. You hear that? My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I will give them eternal life. They shall never perish and I shall any man pluck them out of my hand. So if we choose to be a sheep, if we come unto him as the living stone, Eternal life is the end reward. And we see that uh, back to El Paso here. Sometimes just the the way things are on my mind, especially uh, here in El Paso where we're studying 1 John, we're studying Luke, I'm preaching 1 Peter. For those of you who have been listening to the podcast, you know coming up in December, going to start doing a class online on Romans. If you want to join that, just send me an email. We'll be using Zoom to do it. Well, in our first John study, we keep making note that, you know, eternal life is in Jesus. In fact, the fifth chapter, notice verse 11, 13, and 20. First John 5, 11, this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. First John 5, 13, these things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God. So this isn't written to non-believers. You should know that already, but made clarification that ye may know that ye have eternal life and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. And then in 1 John 5, 20, we know that the Son of God has come, hath given us an understanding that we may know him that is true, that we are in him that is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. So Jesus is the life-giving stone. And while rejected of men, and we have talked about that already, He is the chosen of God, the precious one of God. The prophets spelled this out. The the scriptures show it to us. We see the love between the father and the son. He's the precious chosen one. Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 42, 1 through 9. And and we know because of the New Testament that this is talking about Jesus. I'll tell you what I'll do. 
Same thing I did earlier with Isaiah 53. I'll start with the New Testament reference, and then you can hear it in Isaiah 42 when we read it. So I'm going to start with Matthew chapter 12, 15 through 21. When Jesus knew it, he withdrew himself from it thence, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them all, and charged them that they should not make it known, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Behold my servant, and whom I've chosen, my beloved. So we're talking about Jesus being the precious chosen one, right? So you hear that language? I have chosen my beloved, notice, in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him. He shall show judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not strive nor cry. Neither shall any man hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed shall he not break, and a smoking flax shall he not quench, till he send forth judgment unto victory. And in his name shall the Gentiles trust. I love this. You see, this language, the precious chosen one of God, written to Gentiles, has so much meaning. Do you see that? It's marvelous. It's wonderful. Remember, it doesn't take Peter to be a great student of the scriptures to, to, to write these words in a way that makes that application because the Holy Spirit's the author, and boy, he knows the scriptures, right? Well, back to Isaiah 42 now, so you can hear it, 1 through 9. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, mine elect, and whom my soul delighteth, I put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not cry nor lift up nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed shall he not break, and a smoking flax shall he not quench. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. He shall not fail nor be discouraged. He has set judgment in the earth, and the isle shall wait for his law. Thus saith God the Lord, he that created the heavens and stretched them out, he that spread forth the earth, that which cometh out of it, for he giveth breath unto the people upon it, and spirit to them that walk therein. I, the Lord, have called thee in righteousness, and will hold thine hand and will keep thee, give thee for a covenant of the people, for a light of the Gentiles, to open the blind eyes, to bring out the prisoners from prison, and them that sit in darkness out of my prison house. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory will I not give to another, now my praise to the graven images. Behold, the former things are come to pass, and new things I declare before they spring forth. I tell you of them. So God's wonderful. He's establishing this prophecy about Jesus. And he's pointing out who he is as he is doing it. It's just wonderful stuff. It's very hard to, to miss it, to misunderstand it, to not see it. Jesus, the great and wonderful chosen one of God, foretold by the prophecy. And we can put other prophecies in there, but I'll keep it simple at this point in time. Now, I want you to think about the language the Father used directly with Jesus, and it fits what we just read in the prophecy as well. When Jesus was baptized by John the baptizer, Matthew three thirteen through 17, then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized with him. But John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptized of thee. Comest thou to me? Jesus answering said unto him, Suffer it be so now, for thus becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he suffered him, meaning he allowed him. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lightning upon him. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So the precious chosen one of God. Here's God the Father saying, Here's my stamp of approval. We see it again in Matthew 17, 1-5. After six days... 
Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John, his brother, bring them up into a high mountain apart and transfigured before them. And his face did shine as the sun, his raiment was white as with light, as the light. Behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Then answered Peter and said unto Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here, if thou wilt. Let us make here three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, one for Elijah. While he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son, and whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. God the Father says, This is my chosen one. This is my Son. Listen to him. It's clear. Not just through the prophets, not just in the fulfillment of prophecy, but in the way the Father talked about and to others about His Son, and the way that it heard Him. And John 12, 27 through 33, not 33, John 12, 27 through 30. Jesus says, Now is my soul troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this cause came I into this hour. Father, glorify thy name. Then came there a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. The people, therefore, that stood by heard it and said it thundered. Others said, an angel spake unto him. Jesus answered and said, this voice came not because of me, but for your sakes. God the Father, he wasn't ashamed to establish who Jesus was, to lend his voice for people to hear wonderful stuff. The Father didn't abandon him. One of the things that I hate about the false doctrines that have been spread through Calvinism is the idea that Jesus was abandoned on the cross. And I've heard many people, even people that deny Calvinism, make that statement through misappropriation of scriptures. Listen, God the Father doesn't forsake the righteous. Jesus has been and always will be. He will appear a second time without sin unto salvation, Hebrews 9 and verse 28. He has never been, through his own or anybody else's actions, made a sinner. He was the sin offering, like we read in Isaiah 53 when we looked at that prophecy. But he did not become sin. The Father did not become ashamed of him, not able to look on him. I've heard whole sermons where people have falsely made that statement. And then you, you've taken this language, you've taken this language, to whom coming is unto a living stone, disallowed of me, but chosen of God and precious, and you've made it to whom coming is a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and rejected by God. See, you've changed it. You've perverted it. What a shame. Jesus is not the abandoned one. In John 8, 27 through 29 they understood not that he spake to them of the Father. Then said Jesus to them, When ye have lifted up the Son of Man, then ye shall know that I am he, and that I do nothing of myself. But as my Father hath taught me, I speak those things. He that sent me is with me. The Father hath not left me alone, for I do always those things that please him. In John 16, 32, Behold, the hour cometh, yea, is now come, that ye be scattered, every one to his own, and shall leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. Folks, he's the chosen precious one, chosen precious one. Father's never abandoning the faithful. Think about, think about that. I can't believe that anybody is so ignorant, no matter what scripture they, is confusing them, that they're so ignorant to make that error. 
You know, even the psalmist said, Psalm 37, 25, I've been young and now I'm old, and yet have I not seen the righteous forsaken nor seed begging break or seed begging bread. I'm sorry that I'm butchering words today. Uh, nothing's wrong with me. Just seem to not be reading it right. In that case, quoting it right. Folks, Jesus isn't the abandoned one. He's the precious chosen one. And all that he done, all that he, he is doing and all that he will do, he is the precious chosen one of God. And we, unlike those who have rejected him, just like those to whom this letter is written to, and I hope you I can include you in this. If not, you need to get your life right. Are the ones that have come to the chosen one of God. Now, like Jesus, whether or not men accept us doesn't matter. We don't need man's approval. Faithful Christians don't win popularity contests. We need to focus on how God looks at us. In Romans 1, 7, to the saints, to all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Think about that, beloved of God. In Ephesians 1, 6 and 7, the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he has made us accepted in the beloved, and whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, even the riches of his grace. This is what we can see. That though men rejected Jesus, he is unto our Father chosen and precious. So, that next phrase, ye also, as lively stones, even though we may be rejected of men, even though men may look down upon us. You know, the servant is not greater than his master. Isn't that what Jesus told the apostles? That, hey, <laughs> the world's rejecting him. What do you think it's going to do to those of us who are following him? In John 15, 18 and 19, to the apostles, the world hated you. No, it hated me before it hated you. If you're of the world, the world would love them because you're not of the world. I have chosen you out of the world. Therefore, the world hateth you. Remember the word I send to you. The servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they've kept my saying, they will keep yours also. We can expect to be treated by the world the way that Jesus was. But that also means we can expect to be treated to the Father the way Jesus was, as lively stones. And 2 Corinthians 6, 16, what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. We are unto God lively stones, his temple, his spiritual house. Hebrews, the third chapter, the first six verses. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him that appointed him. As also Moses was faithful in all his house, for this man was counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who hath builded the house hath more honor than the house. For every house is builded by some man, but he that built all things is God. And Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant, for a testimony of those things were to be spoken after. 
but Christ as a son over his own house. Whose house are we if we hold fast the confidence and rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end? It's like what what Paul uh, said to Timothy after he talked about the qualifications of elders and deacons. He told Timothy, if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou ought to behave myself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. We who are faithful, who continue in the faith, are the house of Christ, the house of Christ being the church of Christ. We, in God's eyes, though rejected of men, are lively stones, a spiritual house, his son's body, the church, a holy priesthood. John wrote to the seven churches of Asia in Revelation 1, 5, and 6 from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the first begotten of the dead, the prince of the kings of the earth, on him that loved us, Washing from our sins on his blood has made us kings and priests unto God his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. So no matter what men looks at us as, we're the spiritual house, a holy priesthood. We're to offer spiritual sacrifices. In Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. So you yourself a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that you might prove what is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say through the grace given to me to every man that is among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly according as God had dealt to every man the measure of faith. We are those who are the offering the spiritual sacrifices to our Lord. The church in Philippi financially supported the Apostle Paul. Notice what he said in Philippians 4, 10-18. But I rejoice in the Lord greatly, that now at the last your care for me hath flourished again, wherein you are also careful, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in respect of one, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere in all things I am instructed both to be full and be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthened me. Notwithstanding, ye have well done, that ye did communicate with my affliction. Now you Philippians know also that at the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but ye also. For even in Thessalonica, ye sent once and again to my necessity. Not because I desire a gift, but I desire fruit that may abound to your account. Now, he's going to explain that, and this is what applies. He says, But I have and abound and have full, have received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent of you, an odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. So for the congregation in Philippi, we see that their support of the faithful apostle Paul, their financial aid of him in preaching the gospel, was a sacrifice unto God. So we got Romans 12 1 through 3, verse 1 particularly, we present ourselves, our bodies unto God as a living sacrifice. Philippians 4, 10 through 18, the support of the work being done by faithful teachers of the word of God is a sacrifice. And Hebrews 13 got another one, verses 15 through 16. By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continue. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But to do good and to communicate, forget not for which such sacrifices 
God is well pleased. So there, the, our lips giving thanks to him as a sacrifice and also to do good and to communicate, forget not, is a sacrifice. I, I wrote uh, a series of articles on the book of Hebrews. You could go back and if you'd like to look at those, I think you'll find it a very good study. But the word communicate there is the Greek word koinonia. And it means partnership, it's fellowship. So to communicate is that, to have fellowship is that, that we have with those in light, 1 John 1, 3 through 7. So it's talking about our work among faithful brethren to do good and to communicate. So to do good to and with our faithful brethren. Don't forget that because that's sacrificial in the eyes of our Lord. One of the aspects of that, if you read 2 Corinthians chapters 8, verse 1 through 9 and verse 13, when the saints in Corinth, we're going to help the poor saints in Jerusalem, you'll see that that was koinonia, that that was fellowship. So you get get the ideas there of how we offer sacrifices to God with our bodies, with our lips, uh, with our aid to those teaching the gospel, with our aid to needful brethren. Those are sacrifices unto God. Think about that. Keep that in mind. And, and, and it kind of plays a little bit. You know, these aren't aren't primarily Jews being written to. Uh, but if you take the Old Testament, you know, the physical sacrifices that the children of Israel uh, made of old were given to the Levites. Uh, those who were catering to the tabernacle and then later to the temple when it was built, those sacrifices that were made became their food and their belongings, their money, the things that they lived of. In fact, Paul used that in talking about financially supporting teachers of the gospel, evangelists. In 1 Corinthians 9, 13, he said, Do you not know that they which minister about holy things live the things of the temple? And they that which wait at the altar are partakers of the altar. Even so hath the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. So when we give of our finances, when we give of our earthly possessions, even though they may be going to needy saints or faithful teachers of the gospel, God considers that both of old and new, sacrifices unto him. Now, how that comes about, under the old law would have been through the high priest coming to the temple or the tabernacle before the temple was built. Now, we come to the Father through Christ, acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. First of all, ourselves. Romans 5.11, not only so, but we also join God through our Lord Jesus Christ by whom we have now received the atonement. So we're able to come to God through Jesus Christ. We can come be before the Father in Colossians chapter 3, verses 16 to 17. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. We come to the Father through Jesus. We give thanks to the God and the Father by Jesus. The Hebrew writer, again, I wrote these articles. The book of Hebrews is marvelous. Hebrews 10, 19 through 22 says, Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. So for those Jews that were reading this letter, you don't have to come to the Father through an earthly man. You come to the Father by Jesus. You can enter into the most holy place, which no one else could do but the high priest under, under low law. The text continues, By a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh, 
having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We can come to the Father through Christ because of Christ. And our works that we do through Christ, our sacrifices that we offer up to the Father through Christ, they glorify God. 1 Peter 4.11, a lot of people know the first part. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. But the verse continues. It doesn't end there. It says, if any man minister, let him do it as the ability which God giveth, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. So this tells us the work that we're talking about there, the service that we do there, comes to the Father through Christ to the glory of God of God the Father. Ladies and gentlemen, that is 1 Peter 2, 4, and 5. I hope I've given some clarity on it. Our next study is going to be on verses 6 through 8, if all works out, where it says, wherefore also it is contained in the scripture. So it just continues the thought. It says, behold, I land Zion, a chief cornerstone, elect, precious. He that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you, therefore, which believe he is precious. So that kind of plays into what we've talked about, right? Um, he's precious. We believe he is precious. We see that God the Father considered him precious. But, but then the text says, but unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. So God knew God knew what was going to happen, that his only begotten son was going to be rejected. He knew what was coming about. He knew the builders were going to refuse him. We're going to get to talk about these things as we look at verses 6 through 8. And as they were appointed, very fascinating uh, to think about uh, as they were established. You know, when we think about the determinate council and foreknowledge of God. Great things to think about. I, I don't want to start, you know, it's, it's hard. I, I, I want to get, I want to keep going, folks. I want to keep going. This is great stuff. Uh, great stuff for us to consider. I thank you so much uh, for your time, for you listening to this lesson. Uh, until Tuesday, if the world continues, we'll come back with another podcast. I thank you. And until then, I'll say goodbye.